0: morning to everyone again. The question for the children, children, what, what season is coming up? What, what special day is coming up? John? Yeah, winter. <laughs> it's more special than some, maybe. What special day in winter is coming up? I heard somebody say it. Christmas is coming. Okay. What is what is special about Christmas? Jesus' birth, okay. Let's be honest now. Is that the only thing that's special about Christmas? What else is what's special? Present. Presents. One one honest one. Yeah, the season of Christmas is coming. I Had to think this morning. Uh, Alvin's devotional. I appreciate that, Alvin. Um, talking about seasons, uh, Christmas is a very predictable season. It, it comes every winter. It has so far. Um, we look forward to it. We expect it. Uh, maybe we plan for it. Um, some other seasons in life we, we can't always plan for. And sometimes it seems those seasons tend to overlap each other. And we feel like we're in multiple seasons at once. So I did appreciate that Alvin. Thank you. So another year uh, almost over. Um, I think looking back, uh, it feels like this year has maybe kind of fallen in the shadow of last year. I don't know if I'm talking about it or not, but last year was was very different, and this year everybody's just kind of waiting, seeing, um, are we back to normal or are we not? But as we approach the Christmas season, I think it's good to remind ourselves um, the reason for it, why we celebrate it, how we celebrate it, and I think... I didn't actually look this up. I think Christmas is certainly the most celebrated holiday in the United States. Um, it starts sometime late October and goes through December. So um, certainly probably the, 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 most, the most that we, we see a, uh, around us. So when we think of Christmas, um, what all do we think of? We mentioned the birth of Jesus. That's good. Uh mentioned gifts. That's good. Uh, being with family, hopefully. Um, Is Christmas a happy time for us? And again, different answers for different people. Um, For most of us, hopefully, there is at least a certain amount of joy. Um, There are those who have lost loved ones, those who are separated from loved ones, or even those that simply do not have much for family or loved ones. And it can also be a time of sadness and loneliness, um, looking at those around you that seem to be happy, and for whatever reason, you're not feeling that. And let's remember to watch for those around us who um, appear that way, who are, are going through that and reaching out, including them uh, in our time of celebration as well. So the question I have today, does God want us to celebrate Christmas? And if He does, how does He want us to do that? And I know there's obviously you know, disappointment over what it's turned into, um, is it even the actual day that Jesus was born? And uh, I'm going to guess it's most likely not. I don't feel it's super important that we commemorate His birth exactly on the exact day. Um, Some people do choose to skip it because they're not sure and that's, that's up to them. But I believe God does want us to observe it and to celebrate it, not necessarily in the way that the world celebrates it. The world has turned Christmas uh, season into a giant spending spree, of uh, gift-giving, and yes, I know gift-giving is, is special, Fletcher, so that's, that's no problem. But gift-giving, or even we might call it self-giving. Uh, do we give our own gifts to ourselves sometimes? And the end often turns out to be a very selfish, a very self-centered holiday. And the idea that children and even adults can only appreciate Christmas if they get a huge pile of presents uh, forces many people to spend far beyond their means for things that in many cases have very little lasting value. So some research, I'm not sure how old this is, but research shows that 56% of Americans expect to rack up at least some debt in spending for Christmas uh, this season, and 16% expect it to take at least six months to pay off that debt. So for them, the giving continues all the way through June, um, and then starts again in October. So the average shopper spends nearly $1,000 on gifts. I can't quite believe that, but I guess if you're the average shopper, maybe that's true. And parents spend as much as average of four to 500 per child. Um, again, these are statistics off of Google, so whether this applies to you or not, um, I don't know. But that is, that is what Christmas is tur- has, has turned into in the world around us. Uh, some use funds from retirement, emergency funds, credit cards, even payday loans to purchase what they feel is necessary for the joy of the season. And those who avoid these things are accused of not having the Christmas spirit, which I think can at least apply to me sometimes. I am not a big gift person. Um, As Christians, what kind of Christmas spirit should we have this season? I do believe the Bible teaches us to celebrate this time of year. And I also feel that to not celebrate Christmas, because of how the world has corrupted it, in a sense, let Satan win twice. He's already succeeded in turning the world's attention away from the true meaning and towards the consumer-frenzied uh, meism holly holiday that we just talked about. And to ignore it entirely because of that, I feel, is letting him win again. Um, he's won in that one sense already. And then to get Christians to ignore it because of that, I feel, is letting him win twice. One of his favorite tricks is to take something good, and to alter into something else, to draw people's attention away from what God intended. I think Christmas is a very, very good example of that. A lot of what we see today is simply Satan's attempt to draw people's attention away from the reason of Christmas. Um, So I want to encourage us not to overlook the true meaning of Christmas, to not become distracted or disillusioned by what the Christmas we see around us, But to understand the real meaning of Christmas, we have to understand the reason that Jesus was sent here as a baby. So I'm kind of kind of go back. I know this. A lot of this is simply a. It's nothing new. um, It's stuff we all know, but it's just good to to be reminded of this again. I believe. So the real reason for Christmas is because of man's fall into sin and God's plan of redemption for fallen man. The first Christmas was a key step in God's plan of salvation. The prophets had told for years of the promised Messiah coming, who needed to come to earth as a human to fulfill his father's plan. So, When the angel first came to Joseph to explain to him what was happening with Mary, he explained the reason for Jesus' coming. And if you would, turn with me to Matthew, uh, the first chapter. Matthew 1, verse 18. And the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought on, the, on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did the angel the Lord command and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So, very familiar story, like I said, but a couple of key points here. Uh, Verse 21, the angel was very specific as to what this coming baby's name should be. His name should be Jesus. Because His purpose was to save His people from their sins. Um, That was the reason that He came. Verse 22, this event had been foretold by the prophets of God for centuries. And again, that's a complete study in and of itself. Hundreds of prophecies over thousands of years. Some are very clear, some not so much. And verse 23, the literal event of God living among men as a human was foretold by Isaiah as part of God's warning to His people back when He was in Isaiah chapter 7. So that was actually um, foretold, that, that Christ will come to earth as a human. So the story of Christmas actually starts way back in the chapter of Genesis. And I'll read a couple of verses there, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and, female, he, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Um, we, to a certain extent, at least look like God. And God gave man dominion, gave him authority over his creation that he had just spent a week making. Uh, God turned that over to man. We know the story. Uh, Adam named the animals, and then uh, God gave Adam uh, his wife Eve for a helpmeet. And for about one chapter, everything went rather smoothly. Then Satan comes along, uh, enters the picture in the form of a serpent, and he tempts Eve in chapter 3, and she in turn... Uh, tempted Adam, and together the first man, the first woman, committed the first sin. So here we are, three chapters into it, and already God's perfect creation, and it's already been messed up. So man believed the lie he could be like God, he believed the lie that God didn't mean what he said, and he believed the lie that God couldn't be trusted. I want to just quickly look down through uh, Genesis 3, kind of verse by verse, um, and make some comments as we go. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Hath God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So Satan was creating doubt. That was the first step there. Created doubt in Eve's mind. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now here again, um, Eve responded to Satan's temptation by actually adding to and exaggerating what God had said. God had said, Do not eat, and Eve said, We're not supposed to touch it either. So already she was getting God's commandment out of perspective. Verse 4 Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. And here again, um, a direct lie. God did say that, and Satan was already um, directly lying. Verse 5 For God knows that in the day you shall eat of it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So implying here that God had something better that He was keeping from them. And He told them not to eat of the tree because supposedly if they would, they would know more than they did then. Which was true in a, in a sense. But it was not that they would become like God. So He implied that God was giving them the good but withholding the best. And that is a, a common uh, temptation that he, that he presents to people. Trying to make them believe that God cannot be trusted. Uh, Verse 6. So, when the woman saw the tree was good for food that was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So, here the results of their sin were immediate shame. They knew they were naked, and what God had created good just a few days before, sin had already tainted, and they were feeling guilty for being God's creation. Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So I don't know um, if how often God visited them, if it was a daily thing. I I thought somewhere I read that it was, but I could be mistaken on that. But they knew that this was God coming, and He was coming to visit with them, and instead of looking forward to His visits, they were fearful, and they hid themselves. Then the Lord God said to Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? So here Adam was um, hiding himself from the very one who made him, which is somewhat ironic there, but anyway. Um, verse 12, then the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So they're already passing blame back and forth. Um, Eve blames the serpent, and Adam blames Eve, but in a sense, Adam actually blames God because he reminds God that it's this woman you gave me. She's the reason I felt the temptation here. So in a sense, um, he's actually pinning the blame back on God, which is actually a very, very very scary uh, thing to do. So, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, a little hint here of what God had coming in the future, his future plan coming up. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I command you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And You shall eat of the herb of the field, and the sweat of your faith you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, from dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So God passed judgment on them and in their future generations. Um, pain in childbirth and needing to raise food from an earth that was no longer friendly um, instead became hard to work with. I don't know if, if Adam and Eve ever sweated before this point, but at this point they began to, to sweat. I don't know if that was something that God added in there. I'm assuming it probably was. So sweat is also part of the, part of the curse in a sense as well as the thistles and the thorns. And then if we keep on going, uh, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So by the end of the chapter here, they were driven out of the garden entirely. Um, Their life had changed from living in a paradise to being forced to work for everything that they got. Um, Pretty much kind of what we are used to today. Uh, Everything was, I shouldn't say everything, uh, life became more difficult. Uh, Reality was was a a very difficult life, the results of their sin, and um, it was no longer just all one one big pleasant experience anymore. So was all this a surprise to God? Um, Was he surprised that the people he created uh, had disobeyed him? Um, Did he expect his creation to reject him? And we could ask why he gave man a choice, if he knew they would choose against him. We could also ask that if God's only good and everything that He created is good, then where did this evil come from? Uh, did God create Satan? Big question we won't try to answer today. But a couple of these questions I do want to answer. Um, number one, God is only good and hates evil. 1 John 1 verse 5 says, This then is the message which ye have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. There is no, no darkness um, no gray in, in God. Uh, Psalm 5, verse 4, For Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. So God is only good. God has no evil in Him. And then if God is good, then everything He created is also good. Uh, Genesis one thirty-one says, God saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. So God pronounced His creation very good. It was up to his own standard of good. But man, unlike animals, was created with the ability to choose whom he serves. And the reality of man's free choice is that he may choose to accept or reject God. God will not force us to serve him, but he does open the invitation to all. Uh, Revelation 3 verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. So this gives the impression that God is extending the invitation, but it is our choice whether we accept that or not. So we have a holy God who created an intelligent man with the ability to reason, uh, to make choices, good or bad, wise or foolish, and to live for the present or live for the future. Uh, I've often pondered that um, that God gets. How do I say this correctly? God gets enough glory and enough honor from the people who do choose to serve Him, that He was willing enough to give man the choice and accept the consequence that some would not choose to serve Him. So that's that's an interesting thought to kind of ponder. Um, So God's will is obviously for us to choose to follow Him. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, Who, speaking of God here, will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of truth? So this is not that God only chose some. God's will would be that all would choose Him. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God desires that none of us would be lost, and He would desire that we would all choose to follow Him. As we know, God's patient. He's longsuffering. He won't instantly cut us off if we disobey. The Psalms have many verses about God being slow to anger, being gracious, compassionate, full of mercy. Um, We talked about forgiveness in Sunday school. God gives second, third, fourth chances. Um, As long as there is life and breath, the chance is still um, open to repent. We are also warned that His patience is not indefinite. Um, We do not know what He has in store for us. We do not know when His mercy runs out. We do not know when our time here on earth runs out as well. And we are advised not to test God's patience beyond, um, well, at all. So we come back to the question uh, what is sin? Where does it come from? If God is good, everything that comes from Him is good. And we know He did not create sin. And I believe the answer is in James chapter 1. And this goes back to uh, man's choice. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is, has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it, brings, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So this pretty much describes adam and eve um, they saw something that they desired their their human nature desired they were tempted they made the wrong choice and then sin comes from making that wrong choice so basically uh, man's given two choices follow god or not either accept or reject him either serve or serve him or rebel against him the definition of sin is really fairly simple It's anything that man chooses that is contrary to the will of God. Again, going back to man's choice. Anything that goes against God's law of holiness, it is the absence of God's righteousness, the lack of moral perfection, something that simply falls short of God's standard. And that seems maybe simple on the one hand, but if we go through our day-to-day lives, um, sometimes knowing what is sin and not is not always that simple. And... um, we tend to think of some sin as being worse than others, but if we go on into the second chapter of James, um, he gives a couple examples here in verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. And he goes on to say that if you commit one but not the other, you're still as guilty as if you committed every, the, as if you transgressed the entire law. So sin is sin in God's eyes no matter how great or small. So if we um, say that God did not create sin, but He did create a man with a free choice, then why does He allow evilness in the world? And the answer, again, is simply that God created man with a free choice, and then if the man has the ability within that freedom of choice to choose what he does, God doesn't always stop him. Uh, God is not responsible. So so is God responsible for evil? Uh, We could ask that question as well. And I guess we could ask the same question then, is light responsible for darkness? Um, is it light's fault that there is darkness? And that's kind of the, the, the same thing. The absence of, of light, the absence of heat, is simply cold and darkness. So the absence of God is evil. So when we say, well, why is there evil in the world? That is where God is, is absent. Um, we could not understand God's goodness if we did not see the contrast of evil in His absence. So God created man with the ability to choose and reject him, or the ability to choose to accept him. So by allowing that choice, God allowed evil. Um, because man was able to choose something, uh, we can't choose between good and good. We have to choose between um, good and evil. Uh, black and or white and white do not contrast, but black and white are the contrast. So, but there are some positive aspects, I believe to God allowing sin to exist, if we think about it. Uh, Number one, it allows man to make the right choice. I don't think we fully understand, like I said earlier, how much it means to God for us to choose Him, to choose the right choice. Um, I think if we would know how much that means to Him, we would probably do more to choose to serve Him and also to share Him with others. Number two, it gives the holiness of God something to contrast to in a way that light contrasts with darkness, white with black, um, the holiness of God is contrasted when we see the evil that results when He is not there, when he is not allowed in control. It allows him to provide salvation for sinful man, which in turn allows him to demonstrate his attributes of grace and love and mercy that would be largely meaningless if man was sinless and had no need for them so God has God is who He is He has these attributes um, he is full of love, he is full of mercy. And the fact that there is sin allows Him to show those attributes to us. If, if, if there was no sin, those, those attributes would be largely pointless because we'd have no need for them, and therefore we would not fully appreciate Him for who He is. It also allows Him to pour out His wrath and judgment on sin, and again, providing a sharper contrast to His holiness, and white to black versus white to white. So back to Adam and Eve in Genesis. Um, was God uh, surprised and shocked when they disobeyed him did he scratch his head try to figure out a plan quickly you know, now what do I do uh, my creation is turning against me uh, I don't think so I think he knew from the instant he created man with a choice that this moment of choice would someday come and he had this plan in waiting already and if we go back to um, Genesis 3 I won't turn there again but uh, verse 21, he, he killed animals and made skins, made, made coats for them. And this was the first of many sacrifices. This was already putting this plan in motion and showing them what it would take to cover their sin. So this was the first blood that God Himself actually shed as a covering for man's sin. He was setting an example. Sin requires justice. The wages of sin is death. And the price of sin can only be paid with blood. So here in the very, at the very beginning, God was already shedding blood in, in a, an effort to cover their sin for a future, a future time. Verse 15, um, he, he tells uh, of one who will come to deliver from Satan, uh, enmity between the woman and her seed. Uh, seed being capitalized there, speaking of the coming Savior someday, who will be born of a woman, as we saw earlier here. And although Satan will attempt to destroy him, ultimately the Savior will win. So we know that God was never out of control here. He was not surprised by sin. When he created man with a choice, he knew man would sooner or later fall to Satan's temptation. And so God created a plan of redemption along with that. To redeem means to buy back something that was once owned but now was lost. It's also important why why it's very important to believe in God as a creator, As the Creator of everything, God is also the owner of everything, which means that if something is lost, it was once His. If we take away His ownership as Creator, the whole idea of redeeming or buying back loses its meaning. Only as our Creator can Jesus also be our Redeemer. You can't buy something back that you never had in the first place. So that's a whole other story of creation there, and why uh, the truth of creation is very, very important to the truth of redemption as well. So down through history, through the Old Testament, he continued to give examples of Redeemer. We think of Boaz and Ruth and the idea of redeeming something there. Um, this was, very, this was very, a very central part of, of the history. So there was no excuse that the Jewish people did not expect Jesus. And yet as human nature goes... Um, over time, people formed their own views, their own ideas of what a Savior should look like, and the role he should play when he arrived. So when the first Christmas came, um, we see a very differing response among the people. Um, if we go on to his disciples, they were confused. Um, they had expected a Savior, a King, to deliver them from the Romans. Um, that The general population kind of expected that. And Some of the prophecies did speak of the coming Messiah ruling on the throne of David, having the government on his shoulders. Some of that, I believe, is yet to come. And they were looking for that then. The whole idea of a heavenly kingdom was a very new concept to them. They knew earthly kingdoms, but not heavenly kingdoms at that point. So They had to adjust their thinking. Um, They misunderstood, I think, his first coming in some ways the same as we misunderstand his second coming. We have a lot of ideas how a second coming will look and a lot of varying opinions on that, and the Bible is a little unclear on some of the details of how that will be, and so I think before we're too hard on on those around the first Christmas, um, we should remember that we're not totally certain on how the second coming will appear either. We look at the Pharisees, they had their own version of God's law, and they were kind of self-serving, they were in power, they had the last word, they didn't really want a Messiah because that would interfere with the program they had. And also, something to keep in mind today that the more authority man gives himself, the too often that conflicts with God's authority. Uh, King Herod viewed the new king as a threat. He responded by killing all the baby boys, and again, an effort not to submit to a higher authority. The wise men, in contrast, were probably, well, they were foreigners. Um, and probably pagans in the Jews' eyes, certainly were what they would consider probably unbelievers. And they greeted the newborn baby as the king should be welcomed. They brought many gifts, they traveled many miles, and thought even that possibly the the gifts they gave could have been sold later, um, and it was God's way of providing for Jesus' family as they fled to Egypt and back and forth. They had expenses there, and possibly God provided for them in, in those ways. Uh, The shepherds, probably the most ignorant, unlearned people of their day, had the privilege of being given an announcement by a heavenly choir. It says they returned to their duties, but then their hearts were full of praise and glory to God for what He had allowed them to witness. So sometimes uh, the most simple are the least skeptical. The the um, The more we think we know, sometimes the more skeptical we become. And Mary, when she received the news... Uh, It says she worshiped and glorified God. I think I'm going to take just a a minute to read that account of her there. Um, I think it's an excellent example of that, of a correct um, reaction or, yeah, response to the first Christmas there. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 46. This is Mary speaking here. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, and for behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts, he has put down the mighty from their thrones, he has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to their fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So twice, once after the shepherds had gone, and then later after his parents found Jesus in the temple, it says that Mary pondered these things in her heart. We don't know much about Mary, but I picture her as a a quiet person who took these things seriously. She pondered the the meanings, the things behind um, what happened. And I think she realized that in spite of the rejection, the criticism that came to her, um, the incredible privilege she had been given of being the mother of the Savior of the world. And that's kind of hard for us to imagine what that would have been like. I think we can see in some of what she has said here um, an example of her life that we can, we can follow. We also look at like Simeon and Anna in the temple. They both responded with joy and praise. They thank God for fulfilling His promise of the Savior to all the people. Interesting enough, Simeon specifically mentions the Gentiles as well as the Jews in being recipients of the coming Messiah, the light of Christ. I think it's very noteworthy. Um, that was a prophecy that was often overlooked by the Jewish people, that the Savior is coming not just for them, but for the whole world. And I think this shows um, a, a true unselfish nature of Simeon's heart. Again, an example for us to not just uh, enjoy Christmas for ourselves, but to share with those around us too. These people lived lives that were in tune with God, and as a result, they recognized God working and fulfilling His promises. They didn't miss His coming like so many others whose lives were cluttered with their own agendas. They were ready, they were waiting, and they truly experienced the joy of the promised Messiah. So, how will you and I celebrate the season of Christmas this year? Um, are our lives so filled with our own things that we're just glad when the stress of the season is over? Um, if we're honest, traveling and, and, and whatever we do uh, can bring stress. And sometimes you feel like, whew, in January we can sit back and relax. But can we experience the joy of the season that really comes from understanding the reason of the season and to keep that in mind as we go through here of Christ sending His Son as our Savior, and that is the reason that we celebrate Christmas. With these thoughts, let's stand for prayer and then remain standing for Closing song. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son as the Redeemer. to pay the price for our sins. Thank you that you care enough about us to have put a plan in place, even when you knew many would reject you. Thank you for the season of Christmas, and we can celebrate the birth of Jesus and all that that includes. It was a courage a desire to share the true meaning of Christmas to those that we meet around us, that the blessing can continue to spread to them as well. We want to honor and glorify You for all that You've done and are doing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.